Hi guys, welcome back. I'm Brianna. I'm Maharo. And I'm Demaya. And this is She Thinks She Knows Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to She Thinks She Knows. We are back with another episode. And today we have a special lady on our on our podcast. Um, her name is Jasmine Naylor. And in her Instagram bio, she has the one of the lines says wife and mom. And it also says wealth activist. So today we're going to be highlighting and speaking about the, that wealth activist piece. And we're going to be getting tips and tricks on her. Uh, tips and tricks from her on how we can benefit um, and how we can become wealth activists ourselves. So, Jasmine, if you would like to tell us a little bit more about yourself, feel free to do so. Thank you so much for the introduction and thanks for having me on the She Thinks She Knows podcast. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, so who am I? I call myself a wealth activist, a spending strategist, a life and business catalyst. I am born and raised in Springfield, Massachusetts. I am a wife of, I think, 16 years now, um, a mother to three children. And um, I have a business called Jasmine Naylor Enterprise, but also I still work in uh, the workspace and I'm a chief of staff to the CEO of the Mass League of Community Health Centers out in Boston, uh, which is my newest role that I have uh, taken on. So um, when it comes to me in terms of how I got started, when it when it relates to wealth, I was raised you know, underprivileged and underserved in on all traditional systems such as welfare, Section 8, low-income housing, mass health, you know, you name it. I was a product of all of those um, environments. I grew up in the hood. Um, and growing up, I knew particularly that I didn't want to stay in that particular condition. And I knew that there was a way out of that condition, um, but I didn't have the blueprint. So I had to figure it out as I went along. And luckily I did figure it out. One of those ways and methods of figuring things out, which was really indoctr indoctrinated from my mom was that, you know, education is one tool to get out. And that's the only tool that she knew of. So that's something that she really ingrained in me. Um, and that was one of the tools that I used in order to break out of poverty. Poverty. And then now um, I have side businesses. So I have Jasmine Naylor Enterprise. My husband and I, we have Naylor Nation Real Estate. Um, we believe in real estate as being a, an important vehicle to break out of poverty, but also to build wealth. And it's open to anybody and everybody to access, uh, which people don't really realize. And a lot of people are shunned away from real estate for various reasons. But nonetheless, that is one of the ways that we've really been catapulting our wealth in a very short amount of time, taking what we've known when we began investing in 2007. I was 22 at the time when I bought my first multi with my husband. And um, now it's, what are we in, 2021. So I think we're 14 years later, 13 years later. I can't remember how many years later it's been. But nonetheless, taking the principles we've learned along the way and actually accelerating them and realizing that the nine to five hustle isn't something that we wanted to stay in for our entire lives. So for instance, my husband is retired um, from working for other people. And we did that with real estate. So now he just works on the real estate and really has other people work on the real estate for us. Um, hence the retirement catchphrase and doing a lot of things that we want to do. And then me, I'm still working in the nine to five, but it's going to be very short lived. So this latest position that I took on, I committed to do two years with this particular CEO. Um, they know me very well. And they asked me just, can I just give them two years within the organization that they're running? And so I said, absolutely. Um, so I'm very big on transparency as well. So this, my new boss is very aware of what I want to do, what I do do, how I do it, all that good stuff, um, and is on the same page with me. So that's a little bit about me. Um, so thanks for opening the floor to me. I just want to say before we begin with more content, it's just so great to hear and to see and to know both you and Elijah. Um, I guess more on a personal level, um, Brianna and I have met you guys 
Um, we met Elijah probably a year ago. We met you more recently, but to see all of you guys like come together, it's just so nice to see. And it really does, I guess, uh, show us as young people or tw in our twenties in our early twenties, like this is possible. Like you buying a, your first multi-unit at 22 years old, like that is possible. You just have to seek those resources out. And so Thanks for coming on once again, and we appreciate that little bit of motivation. Um, I just wanted to echo what Demaya said. I found it really amazing when you said that you bought your first home at 22, um, mostly family at that. And I just wanted to know more about your role or your journey into starting to invest and like what made you think that at 22, that was the right step for you? And like, where did you get that education from to start that yeah. process? So um I really like to I'm the type of person that I love to learn through other people's experiences and so my mother's experiences are the number one experiences that I learned from my mom was a single mom she had three kids I think by the age of 22 so kind of take that mm -hmm. in retrospect and we constantly ran out of money before the month ended um even though even back then we were on all of these public assistances in the public assistance program or system because that's what it is it's a system and um it does not allow you to survive or to, it allows you to survive but not to thrive and as soon as you start crossing over into the thriving hemisphere which is being able to have more money than you need for the month the system cuts you off so my mom being a young mom with three children, um, we would often run out of money. And then when it got to the point where she was crossing over that threshold, where she was about to thrive, the way the system works is it cuts you off of all resources. And then you catapult yourself back down to the bottom because you don't make enough to close the gap. Um, so in essence, if, if you don't have a partner or some type of partnerships, you can never really make it out of the hood, out of off of food stamps, low income housing, you name it, uh, the mass health systems with three children being single at that particular time. So her example was truly what um, I was focused on growing up and in my own mind saying, I don't want to replicate this. This isn't fair and it's not right. And it's very limiting. And so using her as the motto and then her pushing that Jasmine, you're going to education, you're going to get educated, you're going to go to college. College was my focus. I was going to go to college. So I did go to college and I graduated in 2002. And um, I graduated in May. By that March, that next March, that's when I bought the house. Um, in my head, based on what I saw, I also knew I didn't want to be controlled. So when you're on public assistance, they control you in many different ways, ways. And it's a very unjust system. And it is very racist, whether people like to admit it or not. You know, when you're getting public assistance, it really is detrimental to the nuclear family, such as a man and a woman being together. Because when you get public assistance, they want to know who the father is. And they essentially really don't want you married. Because if you're married, then they have to count the father's income. And if the father isn't really stable and he's in and out the home, he could really um, cause problems in the home in terms of the house being sustainable. So all of these things I witnessed growing up, and I knew that's not something that I wanted to live my life under. And so when I went to college, in my head, I was like, well, what is what, what is one of the best ways that I can not end up in that particular type of circumstance? And real estate was one of those ways that I knew existed that people would pay you rent and allow you to live rent free if you did properly. And so that was literally my mindset. I knew from the jump that other people are going to pay my rent. When I leave college, I'm not paying a penny towards a mortgage. Other people are going to help me um, survive. And so that's essentially why I went ahead and proceeded with the multifamily, which I will tell you, the younger you are, the more confidence you have and the less fearful you are. And so in my platform, I work with people aged, you know, 18 all the way up to 65 and working with all of those age groups the younger people are the bigger risk takers and the people that have the most confidence. So I'm hoping your platform is hearing that when I'm speaking now that the younger you are, the better it is for you to get into real estate because the older you get, the scarier you get. And the more indoctrinated you get to the new systems, which is that you have to work for somebody, that business is too risky, that real estate is too risky and that tenants are horrible and that they're gonna you know, pull you through a whirlwind. And I've never not been able to pay a mortgage. My mortgages have always been paid. My tenants 
Do I have an issue here or there with tenant that might come up? Absolutely. But that's the name of the game. It's kind of like working in a pandemic. Some people had a job on Monday and on Tuesday they were let go. Um, your tenants don't necessarily work like that. If you buy multifamilies, you got three tenants in one building. If one of them doesn't pay, you can still pay the mortgage because the other two are still paying. So it's very different than you putting all your eggs in a basket of an employer and you don't even know how they're managing the money and they could let you go the next day. So nonetheless, that is essentially what led me into real estate. The experiences I had growing up, understanding how the system worked and how I didn't want to fall back into those exact, exact same systems, which I partly did because I did become a teen mom at the age of 18. And I did go on section, not section, I went on low income housing. I did get the mass health. I did get the um, daycare voucher, um, but I was hungry not to stay on them long. And I moved right into um, that multifamily right after I graduated. So I did not, you know, wallow in it. And that's the other danger too of systems is that you get comfortable with the system. And when I was repeating that cycle that my mom had lived through, I was repeating it while I was going through college. And yeah, I had a baby on my hip. But while I was in it, I could sense the chains that it brought with it. So for instance, people used to say to me, Jasmine, why are you going to give up your low income housing apartment, you know, to move into a house, you know, you don't have to pay that much rent. I take pride in paying my bills. I take pride in being able to pay cash for my food. I take pride in being able to uh, take care of my children and put them in daycare and pay cash. When I needed the services, they were there to help me, to help bridge that gap for me. But as soon as I got that degree, which is what my mother had promised me in my upbringing, that education will be your um your tool out of this. Um, and I can say that it was, I got that degree and I converted to a full-time employee on June 1st. I graduated May 15th, oh. June 1st. I had a full-time job that made more money than my mom had ever made. So she wasn't wrong with that, but I also knew there were other ways that I could have potentially achieved the same outcome. So we all got to understand our paths and every path isn't going to be the same, but nonetheless, real estate I knew was going to be one of my paths to solidify my freedom perpetually. And then also free me from the nine to five, which is the hustle that I'm on now, which is to buy as many multifamilies to bring in as much cash as possible so that I can join my husband in real estate retirement land. <laughs> Wow. It's like so clear the way that you say it. It's so clear. And um, it just made me think because my, like, that's sort of a similar upbringing that I had. Like, I grew up in the Section 8, also, like, still kind of in it. And I literally see every day the more that I learn about, like, um, rent, like, burdens with rent and all of those things and how the longer you stay on these assistance, um, like, on these programs, the harder it is for you to actually get out of it. And the more that I realized it, I'm like, this is like, this is really not okay. Because when you think of the amount of people who are actually living off of these programs, thinking that it's helping them and it's not, it's like frustrating. And um, so like, for me, my, my biggest thing was that I did not want to rent a house. Like, just the idea, like the minute I learned it, I was like, no, I don't want to be rent burdened. Like, I don't want to be a renter. I want to be a homeowner. And um, I try to like get my mom to sort of, I, I remember I actually had a conversation with you where I was like, I was trying to get my mom to get into buying a house because like, I feel like that will kind of uh, encourage everyone in my family to do the same thing. Because like once the parent really gets out of it, it kind of sets the expectation for everyone. And um, so hearing you talk, I was thinking about like, you said you bought your house like right out of college. Like, mm -hmm. out of college. So how was that saving process? Like, how did you go about getting the funds in? And all of yeah. So here's a quick trip that tip that I shared on my page, which is when you go to college, I worked all through college. So part time, of course. Um, and I was a mom and I was a wife and going to school full time. But um, the trick is certain lenders allow your college experience that la that last two years to be considered employment history. So it gave me the credit as though I had two solid years of working at a particular job at a higher wage. So for instance, when I was working part-time, say I was making like 15,000 for the year. When I got hired full-time uh, back in 2006, um, I graduated in 2006 with my bachelor's degree. Um, in 2006, I think my first my first salary that I had negotiated was like forty five thousand dollars. And so typically they the ba the bank wants to see consistency or wants to see your money go up at a traditional clip. 
Well, I had a big drastic clip, right? So 15,000 to 45,000 just instantaneously. But since I was a college student, the bank looked at me as that last two years as work history. So I didn't have to work at work for two years at the $45,000 level. I got to take my last two, two years. They asked for my diploma. They asked for my transcripts. They asked for my W-2s and my tax returns that I had filed on the lower income. But I was already qualified because I had already gotten this full-time job making $45,000 dollars a year. So all they needed really were um, all of the documents that they requested, plus um, um, what else did they need from me? They needed that and then they needed uh, my contribution. So there's different programs that people qualify for. You can get a house with 0% down. That's your closing costs included in it, as well as your down payment. There's a program called NACA that does that. A lot of people don't like NACA because they are very systematized, but that is the cheapest way to get your first multifamily. And they allow you to get a four family. They do have very particular things. And I didn't go through them for my first house. I went through a similar program, which was Acorn Housing um, for my first house. But NACA um, was a program that I had looked at, but because of those stringent, uh, stringent requirements, we pivoted over to Acorn because we could close faster with Acorn, um, which no longer exists today. But nonetheless, there's a program that exists today that's called NACA that anybody can utilize um, that will allow you to get a house with 0% down. Some of the stipulations for them though are you have to live there for a certain number of years, which typically all loans require you to do that. But NACA doesn't let you do things that I like to educate people to do in the future, which is refinance the home or do a cash out refi or do a home equity line of credit, which then allows you to buy more real estate. But nonetheless, I like to drop that nugget so that people can understand that money should not be the reason that you can't buy a house. It really is the stable income that you have to have. But NACA does require you to know how to make that payment um, in real time. So for instance, if you went to NACA today, and you wanted and you qualified for you got to know what your qualification rate is and you can reach out to banks to figure that out but they look at what your qualification rate is and they want to see okay if you want to buy a house that's going to cost you fifteen hundred dollars a month with uh, your mortgage your taxes and insurance they want to know that you're either paying that now in rent and if you're not paying that in rent that the difference you're saving that if not more they also want you to have reserves. So that's what also makes NACA a little bit more tricky for people because you do have to know how to save. And NACA wants to see, we, nobody should go to NACA unless you've already been saving the exact amount that you need to for three months. So that way you can close on the house faster. If you go to them and you haven't even started saving at all, they're gonna make you have at least a six to nine month saving history. So that's a quick trick. And the mortgage guy had somebody on his podcast um, on YouTube channel, on his YouTube channel and was talking about the latest changes, but that's an inside trick for people. And that's why people don't really go with NACA because you have to have those reserves and that savings history. Um, but you can work the system if you can build the habit early. So when it comes to saving, I just gave you a quick way that you can get into NACA with 0% down, but you got to have the savings behavior with it. If you're going to go through any other type of bank, the cheapest loan, if you compare them, is typically FHA. FHA allows you to get, um, is it 97 and a half, 96.5% loan to value. That means that they will give you a loan for 96.5% of the house and you just come up with the remaining 3.5%. So easy numbers, $100,000. If you bought a house for $100,000, you would have to have your down payment of 3,500. And then what I like to tell people is you include your closing costs, you ask the seller to cover the closing costs. And what they'll do is either cover it out of the cost or they'll bump up the price a little bit to cover it. So you don't have to come to the table with closing costs. So right now you're only looking at 3,500. Then you need to pay for your insurance typically, unless the broker allows you to get that covered in closing costs, your inspection. So your insurance policy depends where you live, how much it would be. In our market, in this in the Massachusetts market, Springfield, Massachusetts market, you're looking at like fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars for a multifamily. So typically, you can pay that all up front for the year, um, and you'll need to pay that up front. So that's some money that you'll have to have as well. Then you need an an inspection. An inspection is a few hundred dollars, depends how big the property is, determines what the price is. It could be from $350 to $750. So I always tell people to shop around. Then your other out-of-pocket expense would be your appraisal. Your appraisal is about, um, what are the appraisals? I just paid for an appraisal. 
I can't remember what I paid, but anyways, let's say three to $500 for your appraisal could be a little bit more than that. Those are the things that are going to be outside of your pocket to buy a house. And so you do need to have money in the bank to do that. A lot of ways that people um, get that large pool of cash is around tax time. People that get, get big tax returns, that's a good way that you can you know, get yourself into real estate. But the other good way, as well as just solid savings habits. So what I like to tell people is, and I posted on something like this today, which is if you went out to eat in the last 30 days, did you really have to go out to eat? And so when people say, I don't save any money, and I'm going to ask you, well, have you gone out to eat in the last 30 days? Yeah, I went out to eat. I eat out every week. I have to have my eat out budget. I spend like $200 a week on eating out. And I'm like, well, that's where your money is that you're supposed to be saving. But you're eating it. The biggest place people lose money is food and eating out food, not cooking it in the house. Um, getting your hair done. Do you really need to get the Poag Justice braids down to your behind? No, you don't. <laughs> do you really need the Malaysian weave? No, you don't. There are other ways you can do your hair that don't require four, five, fifteen hundred dollars outside of your pocket. You don't need the Bellagio highlighting system in your hair. You don't need it. Your hair is beautiful just the way it is. My hair, I don't dye my hair. This is my natural hair color. Are grays starting to pop out? Yeah, I got like three grays. So what? I don't care about these grays. You get to see the grays. It doesn't, it doesn't change who I am. Um, I'm not interested in giving that money to that particular place because I take my own advice. I like to buy real estate. So I want to buy as much real estate as I can. So I need to curb certain behavior so that I can get to my goal faster. So those are quick ways that people can begin to save, which is cut your budget of what you're doing on eating out. The other thing is people don't even have budgets, which so I need to back up there. Majority of people do not have budgets, which is why I hear a lot of people tell me, yeah, I want to buy a house. I want to buy a house. And I've been buying houses since 2007. And the people that I've been talking to since 2007, when I bought my first house, they still haven't bought their first house. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, I got to save up. I got to save up. Saving never happens unless you set a goal and you create a plan to actually make it happen. As the example I just gave you. 2007, we're in 2021. You tell me that you couldn't figure out how to save $7,000? <laughs> no, you ate the $7,000 every single year because we're always out to eat or I see you out to eat. Um, so those are quick things for people to really check and a quick way for people to get an idea of where their money is going. Um, one, I never use cash. I hate cash. Uh, cash is king, but I like it in my bank account. I swipe everything, which can also be a danger for some people, but I'm a budgeter down to the penny. I can tell you, like, if you ask me, Jasmine, what did you spend on food in 2007? I can tell you <laughs> I can tell you exactly what I spent, where I spent it. Uh, if you ask me, you know, Jasmine, you know, how many times did you fix your car in the last five years? I could pull my spreadsheets up and add all the line items up and tell you I spent X number of thousand dollars fixing cars. And this is this was this car and this was this car. And I can tell you <laughs> who was driving the car. But that's me. I'm anal like that. I know where every dollar goes, but it also helps you because I can tell you where I need to cut back. And I can tell you through lived experience that food, just like for everybody else, it's also something in my house. And now that everybody's vegan and eating organic, you know, it's a total new line item in the budget. And literally we're talking about these things as we speak. Even when I was in New Orleans, I'm like, we spent X number of thousands of dollars <laughs> from January to May. And this is not normal. So much went to groceries and so much went to out, uh, out to eat. And here we are again. I feel like I'm replaying 2010 all over again, even though it's a different type of lifestyle. And so what I'm saying, um, me and my husband were chit-chatting. I said, do you know Dwayne? Wade still has a budget. I said, you know, Dave Ramsey still has a budget. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You still need a budget because you will go off course. The budget is the map. It's the guide. It's like the ways, right? It's telling you where you're supposed to be headed. And so you get there at the set point in time. And if there's some detours along the way, that's perfectly fine. But you have a budget that is your guide and will let you know when you're off course and when you're on course. And when you don't have that guide, you will eat $15,000 worth of eating out food in a year, if not more. And you'll look back like, oh, my goodness, that's where my money was going. I cannot believe it. Miss <laughs> Jasmine, you're just you're speaking to the audience right now. And I'm in the audience. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, like food, like you said, being vegan or 
having that lifestyle it looks different but i could just i can relate and i i really need to get that type of discipline because like you said i don't want to work nine to five the rest of my life i want to get into buying property at an early age all these things and so like you know what you need to do but when somebody tells you when someone puts you out there it just kind of like it makes it uh more urgent I guess so that is I'm glad you put that out there for us and everybody else to hear. Um, so you were talking about all these different loans that um, come with buying a house and you talked about going to college as well. And so we all know paying for college usually requ requires some type of loan. So can you talk about good debt versus bad debt? Because we hear that all the time, but can you give us your um, take on it? So yes, so I've um, had student loans and they're all paid off. Uh, me and my husband had student loans because we both did go to college. And um, we've also had credit cards and credit card debt. And each one of these types of debts, and then there's mortgage debt, which I think is good debt as long as it's paying itself off or some other type of house is paying itself off. So I like to tell people I haven't paid a mortgage in my entire life. My tenants have paid my mortgages my entire life. So every time I bought a property, it paid for that itself, as well as had extra money, which is profit and allowed me to just keep repeating that cycle, which then created cash flow, which is like a paycheck. It's like the property creates a paycheck. Um, and then you decide what you do with the paycheck. I like to put the paycheck back into the property and just buy more properties or invest in the properties because you can build their value that way, as well as just improving your community. Because we've thus far only have bought in our properties in Springfield, which is where we were both born and raised in our communities, um, which are typically the underserved communities. Uh, and part of that reason is because we feel that we should own our own communities and we should be the landlords to our community because you uh, treat your people differently than other people would treat you. And um, we take pride in that. So when it comes to the good debt, bad debt thing, bad debt is when you're doing things that are not giving you a return back. So things that won't give you a return back is buying your outfit on your credit card and not having the money to pay it off immediately. Uh, doing bad things would be going on vacations that you did not save for. And um, therefore you're paying off on the vacation a year or two from now. That's bad debt, that's not good debt because you did something that you didn't have the money to do and now you have to pay for it for a long period of time and now you're paying interest on it. Um, good debt on the other hand is something that is going to put money back into your pocket. So if you are buying real estate, in my opinion, that is good debt because if you buy the real estate properly, it's going to do one of two things or it's going to do all of these things. It's going to have equity. Equity means that you're buying it less than it's worth. So let's just easy numbers. You go out and find a house. It's uh, They're charging you $100,000, but this house is actually worth $200,000. That $100,000 difference is equity. That's wealth. So wealth is equity, as well as owning something outright. So if it has equity, well, you can make a couple of plays with that in the real estate game. Um, if it doesn't have equity, that's okay, because property builds equity over time. So if you bought a house that was $100,000, it's worth $100,000, you don't have any equity, but it's a three family. And the three family is not only going to pay for itself, it's going to put money in your pocket, it's going to give you that paycheck. That's good debt because it's literally a paycheck. Now, a double whammy, and really that has a double whammy by itself because not only is it putting paying itself off, which is one version, it's building its equity that way. It's also putting money in your pocket. But as you hold on to real estate, it builds equity naturally as well. So mm -hmm. you may or may not know that last year in Massachusetts, some of the surrounding Springfield areas, Springfield and surrounding, as well as Connecticut, Home prices rose anywhere from 12 to 25%. So that $100,000 house that you might have bought last year is now worth $125,000. And you didn't do anything but pay the mortgage. And really, you didn't pay the mortgage. You let your tenants pay the mortgage. So now you bought the house for $100,000. It's worth $125,000. Uh, $25, You've got $25,000 worth of equity. It put a paycheck in your pocket wow. every single week 
or every single month because you get paid monthly. It put money in your pocket every single month and it's been paying down the note. So you bought it for a hundred. Let's just say you took out a note for the whole hundred. Every single month they're paying on it. Now you might owe $97,000 on it. So now it has 3000 of equity that the tenants paid down and $25,000 worth of equity that the market just created. And so that's how real estate works. And that's like the trifecta that I tell people that you're shooting for. If you can buy with equity, oh, amazing. If you don't have equity, but it cash flows, who cares about the equity? It's going to pay itself off anyways. And it's going to build equity over time and put a payment in your, um, in your pocketbook. Um, so that's good debt. And I tell people, don't be afraid of bad tenants, right? Like bad tenants is more a system problem than a people problem. When I say mm -hmm. that, I mean, how did you recruit your people for your property? Did you have a screening process or did you put your mom's cousins, ex-boyfriends, mm -hmm. ex-lover in the place? And then you wonder why they're not paying the rent. Cause if anything, <laughs> they were somebody's ex-lover and which means they weren't their husband. And so that should have been a red flag that they weren't going to pay you because they do shady stuff. Um, so nonetheless, it's a system problem. It's really not a people problem. The ways that you get around bad tenants are you screen them kind of like if we all had businesses and some of us have businesses, you're not just going to let anybody come in and run the business, right? You, you, you interview them. You ask them, where did you work? What you're interviewing them with their attitude. I heard something. What was it? It was Robert. No, it was John Maxwell. John Maxwell was saying, um, you can have two people apply for the exact same job and have the exact same credentials or very similar credentials. And the person that's going to get the job is the one with the good attitude. So you're also testing for attitude because if they got an attitude with you while you're interviewing them to come into your apartment, they're going to have an attitude when it's time that there, there might be a problem. So you pick up on all of these things. You, you understand how much money that they're making. You request their pay stubs. You run their credit. You see in me, since I'm a little anal, if I'm doing the applicant review and I'm running your credit, I'm counting up all your loans. I'm looking at your pay stubs and seeing how much you told me you make. And then I am subtracting to see how much money you have left. Because mm -hmm. if you don't have any money left, that means you can't afford my apartment. If your credit report tells me you have $50,000 worth of debt and $1,000 worth of payments and you're making $2,000 a month and my rent's $1,000, your loan payments are $1,000, you don't got any money to eat. You don't have any money to go on vacation. You don't have any money to fix your car. You, you like It's deductive reasoning. So I tell people like these things can be figured out. Bad tenants aren't the biggest thing on the block. That is a major concern. It's really understanding does your property cash flow. So um, I hope I answered your question. You did. You did. <laughs> Bless some. Bless some. <laughs> um, kind of going off of that, um, what do you think? So I know you talked about how you and your husband both paid off your college loans. As somebody who's in college and, you know, has one more year left and has loans, what do you think is the best way to go about paying that off? Because obviously, if I put money into college that I can't afford, that's bad debt. So, like, how do you think I should go about that? Mm -hmm. So I and here's here's how culture plays a part of this. I thought my, my student loans were going to die with me back before I had good sense when it came to money, just the way I was raised and the way the community responded is like, you pay the minimum that you can possibly pay. And you just, they're like, um, they're like a cousin that never goes away. And they're going to be with you till you die. Because something about your student loans is you have to pay them because the government does not forgive them unless Biden passes something soon. But <laughs> as long as I've been alive, the government always comes for their money and student loans are like the holy grail of the government coming after you. So if anything, that is the loan that you pay at the tippity top of the list because it doesn't go away. And then it accumulates, you know, at fees and interest and penalties and all of this stuff. You don't, you don't want a problem with the government. So in the beginning, I thought I was going to have them forever. And um, then I started educating myself, which is important for people to do. There's so much free knowledge and game out on the internet and podcasts like your podcast, um, radio, say you just name it, YouTube University, I call it. Mm -hmm. Anything you really want to know, you can find out if you're interested. Books, good old books give you information. 
So when it comes to your student loans and paying them off, don't have the philosophy that they need to stick around with you forever and need, you don't need to marry your student loans, right? You can get rid of them at an appropriate pace that you dictate what that is. What mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, because we literally had this conversation with my sister who just graduated from college and my daughter also just graduated from college as well. Um, we have told them we're going to get you into a house as quickly as possible because it's a paycheck. You're not only are you going to go work for somebody, you're going to go collect a paycheck from the W-2 because the bank is not giving you a mortgage unless you have a business that is profitable and that it will allow you to get a house and be at least two years old. Or you guys just, like I just told y'all, they just graduated college. They're automatically getting the two-year work history credit. All they have to do is get a full-time job and they'll get qualified off the full-time job to qualify for a house. So, and they both have student loans. And so um, what we've told them is, listen, let's hurry up and get you into a four family, preferably, or a three family, that cash flows. Cash flows, let's just say in the Springfield market, perfect world. It's not gonna always be like this, but this is what I love to strive for. A property that cash flows at least $1,000 a month. Some of them can cash flow even up to $2,500 a month mm -hmm. with one four family, one four family in the Springfield market. But you gotta be looking right. You gotta look not only what it's making today, you gotta look at what it can make for tomorrow. Uh, and when rents are depressed, meaning they're lower than they should be, it's like a diamond in the rough. So nonetheless, we literally had this conversation in New Orleans last week or this week. And um, my sister asked me that question. How do I pay off my, what is your recommendation, Jasmine and Elijah, for us to pay off, um, for me to pay off these student loans? So I said, well, hands down what I've been teaching you for the last couple of years, which is we need to get you into a multi as soon as possible. Use your two years of college credit to get you in quickly get your full-time W-2 and we'll get you into something and let that pay for your student loans. So we had did some quick calculations on the porch and I was like, listen, if, if you get a house that makes this amount of money in profit a month, you could potentially pay your student loans off in full in less than three years. I said, and this property that we, and I gave her a concrete example, a property that we bought. So, you know, people need to see real numbers. I said, this property that we bought, this particular person in unit one is paying about $400 less than they should be paying. That depressed rent when we bought it, it's still cash flow. So it wasn't a big deal. And you don't hit your tenants with $400 rental increases. At least I don't believe in doing that because again, I'm housing my community. If we're going to raise rent, it's going to be incrementally, or if they move out, then I'm going to go up to the full market value and the new tenant will come in at the full market value. So we ran the numbers. I said, if we were to, if this tenant moved out and we brought in another tenant at the top of the market, I said that will cut down your student loan payoff to two years exactly 24 months in a perfect world if we collected that profit every single month. I said, so you can either go to work and don't buy a house and pay on your student loans um, just with the W-2, it's gonna take you forever. Or you can do it the way I said, save up your down payment or go through the NACA program, get the four family, let the profit pay off the house. Or Elijah chimed in and gave the other idea. He said, this is what I think you should do. Buy the first one, let the cash flow build up. You only have to stay in there for a year, depending which loan product you get. Let's say you get an FHA loan product, save all the profit, stay in it for a year, take that money and buy another multi. And then now you have two multis cash flowing and then you could pay it off faster or equivalent, but actually make more money in the long run. So um, either one of those options is a great option, but the only point is you got to buy the multi first because that's an automatic paycheck. And like I told my sister too, I said, we didn't even touch your W-2 money. I said, I gave you an example with one multi, you could, you could do it in as much as 2.8 uh, years or as less as, uh, as less as two years with one multi, or you could do Elijah's option as well that he had presented and even look at it a little differently that way and make more money in the long haul. And or I told her you could do all of these plus take your W-2 and you could potentially be out of your student loans in a year. Um, it all depends what you're willing to do and what you're willing to sacrifice to get to that goal. So your loans do not have to be with you forever. And if you're coming out of college, if you left college, um, as long as you've got your ducks in a row, multifamilies are one of the best ways to go to build a paycheck for yourself and to pay off things that you might have accumulated along the way. 
Wow. Thank you. That was, <laughs> that was amazing. That helped. That really helped me. I think that like, there's just so much. I obviously, I have heard a lot, like, especially online when people joke about like, I'm never paying my student loans. And it's like funny, but it's kind of sad because as a college student, you're so young and it's like, you're burdened with so much debt. And it's like, you don't really see a way out. So I think that's definitely helpful. And what I'll say too about college, because I'm not a college basher, right? A basher. I've got three degrees. Two of them I didn't pay for. My job paid for the, the company mm-hmm. that I worked for full time. And I had interned with them before I worked for them full time. Um, it was a means to an end. They literally paid for everything. They paid for, when I mean everything, they gave me a $10,000 check at the end when I finished them. Like that's how much wow. they paid for everything. Um, they don't have the program like that anymore, but they're still the most generous of any institution that I've heard of thus far when it comes to education and their United Technologies Corporation. So um, I can't bash education because me and my husband were talking about this. I wouldn't have had the doors open for me that have been open if I didn't go to college. Um, But I also know that college isn't the only means to an end, but we live in a society and a culture that, that, that thinks that college is the end all be all and it is not. So like my son, who's a, a vegan chef, which you, some of you know him, he doesn't want will to be on the show soon. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, he doesn't want to go to college and nor does he have to go to college. And in fact, we had even told him too. Listen, if you want to drop out and get your GED, I'll let you drop out and get your GED because the school system is another system. And all systems aren't made for all people, especially my son. My son is a mover and a shaker. As can be seen, he's just turned 17 and he has a full-blown business making more money than any of my family members who are currently living on SSI or um, Social Security. He's only 17, you know? And so we've spoken to young people and told them that you're only going to make it if you go to college. And that's not true. Restaurant Mm -hmm. owners didn't have to go to college. You know, um, um, different folks didn't have, you don't have to get a traditional four-year degree to be successful. But if you get a four-year degree, there's nothing wrong with that either. But like you said, you leave burdened with all of this debt because everybody just prized you to get the degree, but they also didn't have the financial sense or savvy to tell you the better way to get the degree. So like, People can go to college if they want, but you should go to community college first unless your college is getting paid for because there's no difference from community college than there is from a regular four-year degree. At the end of the day, you're going to get a piece of paper, except one is going to have cost you a pretty penny where one could have cost you a whole lot less pretty pennies. Um, So again, I don't want to bash college, but I also don't want to put it on a pedestal and say that's the end all be all because it's not. Because if you want to be a real estate investor, you don't have to go to college. But if you went to college, there's nothing about going to college and being a real estate investor as well. Um, So what was your question again? (laughs) I think it was just a a closing statement or a comment about how like you were able to give a clear picture of how people can actually deal with that. Because like you were saying, well, like Mahara was saying, it's not, especially in low income families, like college isn't even something that's widely like it's not done a lot. Like my sister was like the first to go to, to fully complete a four-year degree. So my parents had no idea how to even handle debt. Like it, it's still not something they can tell me anything about. They can't really help me on how to navigate it because mm-hmm. they've never had to deal with that kind of debt for themselves. So yeah. it's just like, sometimes it's hard to see the picture of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do outside of college. This is how I'm going to pay it off. These are the payments I'm going to make and show that I can save properly. You know, like all those concepts it's not things that they really had to deal with because they just had to do what they had to do. Like my parents, they just had to do what they had to do. So like the way that you explained it, it was really encouraging and it sort of helped, like it helped me see like a better, how do I explain it? Like, it's like the way out. Yeah. Like I'm able to see like, okay, these are some steps that I can take now. Like I have options. It's not just like, just throw your money into the loans and figure it out as you go. And now I can see what I can do with my money that will actually benefit me more. So I appreciated your explanations about how to save and all of those things. No problem. Thank you. So I hope you guys have been listening because Jasmine is seriously dropping some great gems. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk more things wealth.
Um, welcome back, guys. Um, we just had a short break, and now we're going to go into more. I want to know more about Jasmine's personal life. So I have a couple questions, and I know that Brianna Demire do too. First up, I just want to know, not the specific challenges, but more so like how or what mentality has allowed you to overcome the challenges that you've experienced, which I can imagine have been, you know, there's a lot of challenges you've experienced. Yeah. Um, I think I'm the type of person that I believe whatever challenges that I'm going through, there's a particular test that God is trying to show me so that I don't have to take that test again. And so when things are happening that are crazy and things, crazy things happen, you know, every year, um, I, I try to look at it from the lens as what is God trying to teach me out of this lesson, out of this, out of this experience so that I don't have to get this lesson again. So that this is a test that I need to pass, whether it's dealing with, um, tough personalities, whether that's, um, at work in family, wherever it is, whether it's dealing with raising teenagers, because you guys have all been teenagers, you're in college now. Um, the teenage years can be tough. What lesson do I need to get out of this? And how do I not crush my kid in the process, but really incubate them? And what mistakes maybe my parents made when I was a teenager that I'm trying not to make with my kids? Or you also have the concept of no wonder why my mom acted like that. I can see why she did that now that I have my own kid. She wasn't crazy. Um, it's a it's a it's a response to being the protector or or what have you and wanting the best for your kid and seeing, you know, where your kid might be erroring or what have you. So for me, I have a mentality that nothing is gonna keep me back from my goals and that I am going to do exactly which. I, that which I said I am going to do. And the only thing that is going to keep me behind from reaching that is me, myself, and I. Because anybody else that's a distraction, I can eliminate in some way, shape, or form. So if there's a toxic enemy in my environment that could be a relative, it could be anybody, you know, we have personal choice who we have in our space. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is everybody is not for you on every leg of your journey. Sometimes people are with you for a certain segment of that journey, but they cannot go with you to the next segments of your journey and it's okay. But it takes some time to learn that it's okay. It also uh, takes time to learn that who you think is for you or should be for you may not have the capacity to be for you because yeah. they're looking from their lens. So we talked a couple minutes ago about, you know, my mother did the best that she could with me, but I'm standing on her shoulders and I've only gotten to this point because of what she did for me. And while she couldn't get to the point where I'm at, she allowed me to get to this point. So I can't be upset with my mom. Well, mom, how come you didn't get your college degree? And how come you didn't do this? And why didn't you buy a multi-theme? That would be wrong of me because she lived her own whole set of life experiences and I'm standing on her shoulders that allowed me to see a little bit further um, so you also have to understand that and because people can't see from where you're at um, they can't necessarily incubate your journey maybe how you might think you want them to because they don't have that perspective so I told you I'm standing on my mom's shoulder she might have been in a valley she said Jasmine get the degree and go there and that let me stand on the treetops and when I got to the treetops I get to see the beach and the ocean and the mountains and the rainforest I got to see all these other things that were there that she couldn't see so now when I tell her mom in X number of years, I'm quitting my job and I'm only going to have real estate and other business ventures. And she might say, Jasmine, you're crazy. That's insane. You know, why would you do that? You're losing your security. And I'm like, mom, this job is really not secure. Do you know they could fire me tomorrow? Um, you, yes, it, it served its purpose, but I can't stay here forever. In fact, I work in leadership and I'm the one that knows the numbers and I know exactly how companies could literally be on the edge of bankruptcy. I'm the one that looks at this stuff. They're not as safe as you think they are. I rather bank on me and know that I'm safe for me and know that I gotta I gotta um, do certain things my mother's response isn't wrong it's her response from where her viewpoint is and my response isn't wrong it's my response from where my viewpoint is which is why it's so important for people for, for especially like we talked about my kids a little bit um, it's so important for us to push them a little bit further than we've gone faster and you do it faster because the younger you are, the more risks you're willing to take and the further you can possibly get 
even quicker. And wealth activism isn't only about one generation making it out of poverty or one generation getting independent financial sustainability. It's about multi-generations. Like legacy um, is about not only me, I'm like making moves for my grandchildren. So my kids are here that I'm using right now, but everything I'm doing with them is about my grandkids. So they're the beneficiaries because I want my grandkids to be winning. And so if I can do that, then, and if I do it properly, the legacy will live on because when they make their decisions, they're gonna be making their decisions for their grandchildren. And that's where mm -hmm. the legacy lies. So really it's about my mindset isn't about me, isn't about how many vacations I can take. And it isn't about how good my hair can look, how fancy my clothes can be. It's really about, am I creating something that's sustainable that can flow to my grandchildren? Wow, once again. <laughs> So you've talked about the mentality that you have where you're doing this for someone else. You're not really, you're not necessarily doing it for yourself. Every step that you're taking is to build that legacy. But with these accomplishments that you had, um, or that you're having, like how has this freedom, like how have you been able to use it? What other things have you been able to do with this new freedom of not really having to be controlled by a nine to five and being able to build wealth that can serve for other generations? So it really feels um, like freedom and I can't explain it any other way than that. And it's uh, my husband and I reflect a lot about it. Like if we need to get our car fixed and they say, hey, the bill is $2,000. When I got, had to pay my first $2,000 bill to fix a car, it sounds crazy, but it was like pure joy that I could say, no problem. Do you want me to pay now or when I come to pick it up? It's it's something, it's like something euphoric that I can't explain because I know that at least within not my mom, not my grandma or my great grandma, at least three generations back, I know that they could never say something like that. Um, and so it was very freeing. And then from the perspective of um, reaching these little milestones and being able to see how our decisions are affecting that legacy, uh, you, you have these like out of body experiences, you know, when you're having them like, wow, you know, my kids are making these moves and they're doing, they're moving faster than I moved. And this means that their kids are gonna move quicker, which is the goal that my grandchildren will be set and that I'm building an empire, but my children are gonna be able to inherit this empire, but they're also gonna be able to double or triple it because the goal isn't that I'm gonna do all this work and just hand over a silver platter. It's I'm gonna do all this work and they're gonna double, triple or quadruple it. And then it's gonna keep going because that's wealth, that's legacy. Like it's not the money, it's the knowledge of how to manage and multiply the money. So, you know, it's hard to explain in words but it's something I wish everybody could feel, especially having come from nothing and being able to hit these milestones like, wow, it's not hard to save $30,000, but it was so hard to save that. And the minute, like, it took me so long to get to that threshold. I always had this threshold that I wanna save $30,000 way back 2007 when I had bought my first house. That was a goal and I literally have it written down. Um, and I had goals written down for certain times and it took me forever to hit that goal. But when I hit the goal, I was like, wow, <laughs> I feel good about this. But not only that, all of these steps are door openers. So once I hit that, now it's a piece of cake. It took me like 10, 15 years to get to that goal. And then when I got to it, it's like, oh, I can do this like clockwork. Oh, this is, it got easier once you hit it, which also when you talked about, you know, um, setbacks and stuff like that, sometimes um, the journey, you'll have setbacks on the journey because if you get to that goal, it opens so many other, other doors that you're supposed to open. And I'm a Christian girl and I'm a preacher's kid. And I believe that, you know, our job is to fill our fulfill our destiny, but there's always going to be things resisting your destiny. Because if you're truly a change agent and a change maker, the enemy doesn't want you to be that fulfilling destiny maker because you are you you bring so much light and you can bring so much positivity and it can change the world literally. So my experiences have been as you begin to break these thresholds and you break these poverty curses, generational curses, spiritual curses, mental um, curses, you literally open up new realms. 
And that's the only way I can explain it. Like money is a realm. And when you break the first multifamily home, that's not it. You got to get to the second and the third and the fourth. And as you grow, different things open up in your mind. So in college, they have a syllabus. Well, real estate and investing in business is the same way, except you don't know what the syllabus is. But as you actually accomplish the assignments on the syllabus, it starts opening up all of these pathways in your brain and you begin to see other ways to do things. So, you know, we started with real estate, multifamilies. We've done mobile home flipping. We've done single family flipping. Um, there's development. There's property management companies. There's, whoops, decline. Sorry, ladies. Um, let me put this on. I should have did that already. So anyways, there's all of these different realms that you would not have tapped into if you did not cross over those, those, those uh, hurdles or those assignments. And when you cross over those assignments, it opens up a whole new world. So like I said, my mom was in the Valley. She said, Jasmine, get to the treetops. I got to the treetops and now I can see this whole other type of land. But then also there's people in planes that are even higher that can see things that I can't see. And there might be people in space like an Elon Musk, like he's looking, his, his perception is different, Literally. right? We thought he was crazy in the beginning <laughs> that he wants to fly people to the moon and fly people to Mars. His level was a different realm that he was operating through and he could see things that nobody could see. And so that is what it's like. That is how it is. And so that's why it's so important for young people to get involved as quickly as you can because you want to bust through as many realms as you can. And the older you get the more scary people get. And it might not even be you, it's those people that are around you. So you gotta mm. be very careful being complacent around your natural environment because if you don't belong in that natural environment, they will make you belong there. And your sense of not even belonging there um, will make them uncomfortable and, and make them share things with you that will keep you in a space that they know you don't even belong. But because it makes them comfortable because sometimes your ascent challenges people to self-reflect and people do not like to self-reflect unless they have chosen to self-reflect. <laughs> Brianna and I were literally having a similar conversation yesterday and it, it this this literally can uh, be a topic of so many different like subjects like we were simply talking about food yesterday but it just it, oh, Jasmine, you're just, you're feeding my soul today. <laughs> not even, not even gonna lie. Wow. Like everything that you said, like, it just makes so much sense. And you put it in a simple way so that it's easy to digest and easy to understand. I think that's one of the most important things about this conversation, because like you said, people are scary. Real estate is very scary, especially for people that look like us. But this conversation has put it in such a in such simple terms that anything seems possible. You know what I mean? And it really is. So, like, I'm the kind of person where my environment really does heavily impact my actions because I grew up being very like I was a sympathizer but also kind of like I was really attached to my family like I still am and so it, it gets really hard when I when I see that I'm sort of moving in a different direction and though pe the people that I'm around that I'm comfortable with you know the people that I grew up with they're not really seeing eye to eye with me and so it, it starts to feel isolating and so um I one thing that I really do appreciate is like even being involved with like the cafe and meeting you and Elijah and like hearing all of these stories about people who are able to do things that I've only dreamed of, mm -hmm. it like creates this motivation that I wasn't able to have when I was just in my comfortable environment. Like me being home is comfortable for me. Like when I went to college, it was hard because I thought, yes, this is gonna be the time I can become the person that I've always dreamed of. But then like actually letting go created like this huge fear of like, oh my gosh, like I'm separating from my family. I'm not gonna be able to have the same relationship with them. And it sort of is developing right now. You know, like all we're all getting older. So we're all really branching out into our own people. So it's really scary, but just knowing like this isn't the end and what you can accomplish by just understanding that not everyone is going to be able to see where you're going or they're gonna be able to support it fully, you know, like just knowing that there's people who have been able to get through it and have been fine, like it's actually very motivating. So like, I appreciate it. No problem. And that's probably the most 
challenging component of being successful is how many people can't come with you. And it's something mm -hmm. we don't talk about as a community enough, but we touched on a lot of reasons why. Um, but again, I believe everybody has their own unique destined assignment and it was given to you for a reason. And so if we wanna share our assignment with someone, it's never gonna work out because they have their own assignment and we all have a choice whether we fulfill our assignments or not. And it's very dangerous to settle our assignment for something less than it is because it'll create a lot of resentment as well in reverse. So while some people may not be able to handle you or anyone fulfilling their full assignment, the worst part is the person who knows they have an unfulfilled assignment settling just to make everybody comfortable around them. It's actually um, uh, detrimental to them. It's, it truly is detrimental to them. So that's a whole nother topic by itself, like strategies for dealing with that. What is it like going through it? How do you manage it? Because it is something Elijah and I have talked extensively about and we continue to talk extensively about because it is the reality of success is that everybody doesn't want with you what you want and they might not have the capacity to want what you want and it's okay. And how do you coexist or how do you choose not to coexist? Because that's the other thing that we don't talk mm. about. There are certain environments you can no longer be in when you make it to a certain level because it will actually slow down your progress of where you're going. And I don't have a word for what that is, but I'm listening to this book that talked about it as an infection. So if you are not infected and you go around somebody that's infected with something, what does it do? <laughs> it infects you. Right. And when you get infected, what happens? You get sick. And when you get just like this virus, <laughs> just like this virus. Right. Um, and when that happens, you could potentially die. And when I say die, not in the natural sense, but in the spiritual sense, like that hustle that you had, that destiny you were trying to fulfill, hanging around an infected person can snatch it right up out of you. So then we have to play this. Uh, back and forth in our mental space, which is, okay, what am I destined for? And if I'm destined for that, then God already knew all the struggles I was going to deal with. And the other big thing is God gives us the opportunity to create relationships that are like family. So sometimes family won't be the ones to share certain spaces with you. Not that you don't want them to, because for instance, Elijah and I, all the information you're getting here, everyone has access to in our family. If you follow J&E, which is Jasmine Naylor Enterprise, I share all of this information on my platform. I don't keep anything a secret. When I do lives, I give you from A to Z and everything in between. When family calls me and asks me questions, I answer them. So does my husband, um, but I still can't make you do that which you don't want to do. I can tell you this is how you can get a house, but if you don't want the house, you don't gotta get it. I can give you a deal. I can say, hey, I found this really great deal. I'm pursuing these other projects, but I wanna give it to somebody in the family. I can do that and I have done that and my husband has done that, we have done that, but I can't make you move. And so then I cannot carry the burden that you don't wanna come with me. And I will not be shamed for wanting to go somewhere new. And so that also is a big boundary builder too, because you also have to protect your peace. You have to protect your mindset. You have to protect your momentum. Momentum is real when you're building your success, right? So if you're in college, you're in a semester, you have a very set amount of time that you have to finish your work. People can't come to your dorm talking about they're moving in with you and you got, you got finals or you got projects that got to get done. And they're talking about, you need to come here because I'm hungry and you need to feed me. No, I'm in college. <laughs> I'm getting this degree and my momentum is focused on that and the semester is coming to a close and I'm getting to the finish line and I'm passing these classes. You would have to implement a boundary like, no, you can't live with me. No, I'm not feeding you. And matter of fact, I'm not answering your phone calls because every time you call me, you block my momentum. I was in the middle of writing my paper and I was about to be done in an hour and now you got me emotional and I'm calling my friend to unvent this anger and this frustration I have because you threw me off course. Very basic example but literally that example applies to any type of traction you're trying to build in your life and how you can metamorphosize it into your real life in these other areas it really happens that way and you really have to put the boundaries so like literally jasmine has gone mia sometimes for seasons why because i'm building and because i learned the cycles i kid you not there are cycles to success and when you're getting to new levels 
there's always a fiery dart coming for you after you hit a new pinnacle. And I've lived through it probably 15 times now in the last two years. And literally now I'm like, okay, great. This thing happened. So now I need to be, which is why the Bible says, watch and pray. I need to be watching and praying because something great just happened, which means something is coming to get me off course to not be able to enjoy this to its fullest extent, to deter my attention because I'm supposed to be headed a particular direction. So, and it happens like clockwork. And many times it's family, unfortunately. And they don't even know that they're being used like that against you. They can't, and if you were to confront that, it doesn't even make sense anymore. Now it's like, you know what? I just have to protect my peace. I have to protect my essence of who I am. And um, this is about my grandkids. And so now you're taking food out of my grandkids' mouths. And now I can't have that. I need to pick these boundaries. And not only that, everything that you need to learn, your kids need to learn. And your grandkids need to learn. So if somebody's misusing you, mistreating you, abusing you, whatever the case may be, blocking your blessings, intentionally having envy, strife, jealousy, whatever, your kids and your grandkids need to know how to deal with those situations and how to cut people off and how to have boundaries, mm -hmm. even when it's family. Those are probably some of the strongest boundaries that people have to learn. Thank you so much, Jasmine. This has been like a great conversation. Um, and honestly, we probably need to have you on again. <laughs> so don't be surprised if we hit you up asking to come on again, because I think that so many of the things that you went into detail with were great, but there's so much more that um, we can learn from you and that we can hope that we hope other people can learn from you. So we want to say thank you again. You've been talking about your social media. So um if you would like to plug that, now is the time. Thank you. Thank you again for the invite. And let me know if you want me to come on again. I, I would be honored. Um, my social media is Jasmine Naylor underscore enterprise on Instagram. And on Facebook, it's Jasmine Naylor Enterprise, all one word. So you can follow me on both of those platforms. I also have a YouTube channel. It's Jasmine Naylor Enterprise mm -hmm. as well. So you can follow all three. Sometimes I'm partial to Instagram. So definitely follow me on IG. And sometimes I'm partial to Facebook. So definitely follow me on there. You never know where I'm going to go live from. So it's always best to make sure that you uh, follow all three and turn on your notifications so you know when I do go live because sometimes I give no notice. Um, and then I don't always leave my stuff up too because... I know how valuable what I'm sharing is. So on my platforms, when I literally give you the code A to Z, I'll tell you, you got 24 hours to consume this and share it with as many friends as you possibly can because it's coming down after that because I know the value of what I'm sharing. It's legit and it is the blueprint. So inside scoop for you to follow me. Thank you, Jasmine, for coming on the show again. And that wraps up this episode. So um, follow She Thinks She Knows podcast as well. Um, keep up with the content that we're going to share with you and um, look out for our new episodes. Bye. Bye.